there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, join Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino as they travel deep into Bavaria and unlock Michael Mann's The Keep. Originally running at 210 minutes, the film was notoriously cut down to 96. Roger and Quentin discuss the excitement of Michael Mann as the up-and-coming writer-director of the time, his influence on future filmmakers, their excitement of seeing his second film, and where it all went wrong. Next, join us at the museum as we dig into Peter Hyen's 1997 film The Relic. A fun monster movie mystery, Quentin and Roger pick apart the lore of the film and discuss if rules really matter when you're having fun. A movie that picks up in the third act, you'll have to come along for the ride to see how it ends. And, lastly, fill up a cup of joe and board the Cafe Express. In this charming 1980s Italian comedy starring Nino Manfredi, be ready to laugh, be ready to cry, and be ready to fight against Italian bureaucracy one cup of coffee at a time. Joining us now, here's Quentin and Roger. Thank you, Gala. Thank Thanks, you. Gala. Yes, she's correct. <laughs> this is Quentin Tarantino, and this is Roger Avery. Hello, and I'm so happy to be here with my best friend and my daughter, hey! like, talking about movies. Like, what what better? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, tonight, we've got a couple of really interesting uh, um, films to come up that we have were had interesting reactions to them, frankly, to tell you the truth. Not exactly what we were expecting. There ended up being... Um, Quite a bit of nuance. So let's get started right away with the first film that we're going to be speaking about, 1983's The Keep. Michael Mann's second film. Yes, absolutely Michael Mann's second film. Uh, the reason that I uh, wanted to see the damn thing, all right, yeah. was uh, because it was Michael Mann's second film. What secret, what evil, what force draws them to The Keep? What's at this place? <gasps> what I saw wasn't real. You're part of this. I am the one. 
watchman. I have come to destroy him. The Keep. The Keep, with co-hit The Relic, will be playing August 27th and 28th on glorious 35mm film at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. For further information, go to thenewbev.com. The New Beverly Cinema. Always on film. Okay, this is a, it made it for Paramount. It's a Paramount home video. And the back of the box reads as such. A gothic thriller which grips you with its combination of horror, romance, and the supernatural. It is World War II in German-occupied Romania. Nazi soldiers have been sent to garrison a mysterious fortress, but a nightmarish discovery is soon made. The keep was not built to keep anything out. The massive structure was, in fact, built to keep something in. Dot, dot, dot. Scott Glenn portrays the stranger who alone must battle the supernatural forces whose evil power is dwelling within. Ian McKellen is the medieval historian Kuza, dragged to the keep to unravel the mystery behind its gruesome killings. Alberta Watson stars as Kuza's devoted daughter, Eva, who falls in love with the handsome heroic stranger. Scott Glenn. And that's the back of the box. Paramount Home Video. Paramount Home Video. Almost all serious film fans out there, as well as film critics, when Michael Mann came out with... Thief with James Caan, he blew our minds. It, Completely. We, it was like roll over John Carpenter, tell Walter Hill the news. Uh, you know, it was uh, a new guy out there uh, on the crime film scene who wrote great, gritty dialogue. He had a wonderful visual sense. And made an existential film out of it. It's an existential crime film. Yes, exactly. It, it elevates the form. It does elevate the form. And one of the things about Thief is... It was the only one of the like crime films that came out within like a three year period that like it had the same resonance of a of a crime novel, but also right from the beginning was that he was a uh, uh, a stylist. There was a there, there was a, a an orchestrator involved. There was a director involved. Yeah, and it would be a lie to say that Thief wasn't like a massive influence on me. Whenever I was thinking about killing Zoe, when I was designing all of the bank drilling stuff, I was mm-hmm. literally both. I wouldn't say standing on the shoulders, more uh, cowering in the shadow of Michael Mann. Well, Michael Mann point. actually affected a lot of directors. I mean, everyone heard about after the fact that he just kept a water truck uh, on his set all the time just to constantly wet down streets. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that became the thing for directors to do. Thief looks fantastic. Let's get a water truck and let's yeah. just wet down these night streets and, yeah. th- and throw lights on them. And like when you're saying it affected your work, I mean, uh, th- there's lines in Thief that affected my life. Insofar as I have always lived my life trying to be like James Caan, insofar as I am Joe Boss of my own life. (laughs) Yeah, you are that guy. I am Joe Boss, and I am Joe Boss of my own life. You are that guy who went and, you know, you are the professional thief who carried around in his pocket a little collage of a family and children in a house with a picket fence. Okay, you literally are saying the worst part about thief, all right? Yeah, but I'm I'm relating it to you and your your, how you you identify. Maybe you don't even know why you identify as much as you do. Yeah, okay, there's only difference, though, is I would enjoy that postcard. The only reason the character has that postcard is to just loot, is to say, fuck 
it and throw it away. <laughs> Here's all the life's good yeah. things. Okay, now I'm fuck that. I'm gonna kill everybody. Well, that's just, that's, I, this is not for me. <laughs> that is the Buddhist existentialism inside of Thief, in which is you he lets go of it all in order to advance. Yes. Well, it's well. I I wouldn't put it quite like that. Before we get too lost into the thief, <laughs> I would put it more about the idea that um, he was untouchable because he was untouchable. Yeah. The minute that he fell in love, the minute he had something they could take from him, the minute they could put the bite on him, he had to get rid of the kid. Suffice it yeah. to say, it was such a powerful movie that it yeah. affected all of us in such a big way that immediately Michael Mann was like the man. He was the man. Absolutely, he was the man. Okay. okay, so based on like the back of the box, I'm already in, like I'm in 100%. It reminds me of Castle Wolfenstein. I'm like a Castle Wolfenstein fan even back then. Mm-hmm. But it's like you've got a big keep, you've well, got yeah, Nazis. Well, you've well got- what's going on? Well, what's going on for the audience is the fact that uh, it's just like small village in Romania. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the Nazis show up. Yeah, the Carpathian Mountains. Yeah. It, and Alex Thompson shoots the movie. And I, I almost yeah, have yeah. to say right away because the, 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 two, the two powerful elements at the top of this movie are Alex Thompson, mm-hmm. who is one of my favorite DPs, and Tangerine Dream. And with that amazing, mm-hmm. amazing long lens first shot of those trucks. Oh, absolutely. And I, with that incredible score by well, Tangerine look, Dream. I'll, I'm going to mention uh, in a bit, when I first saw the movie, uh, I hadn't seen it since I first saw it at the theaters. As time has gone on, pretty much the only thing I remembered about it was the beginning. Yeah. Because the beginning was so impressive and it was so ambitious. And also, I think there also is just even a small point as far as me and Roger are concerned that we love William Freakin's Sorcerer so much and nobody at that time was talking about Sorcerer. So to see a movie... Rip off Sorcerer. Yeah. Uh, to set the tone of the film yeah. Yeah, using Sorcerer. It I'm did, in. Yeah, it, did, it, it, it didn't matter that they're ripping it off. The fact that, like, Michael Mann knows to rip Sorcerer off <laughs> yeah. when other people obviously don't. Yeah. All right. That all, all of a sudden put it in this other category. And then immediately you're, you're introduced to the next uh, Praetorian guard of Michael Mann, which is John Box mm-hmm. and his beautiful set for this Carpathian village in mm-hmm. in in the mountains which i believe was done in a in a quarry or something mm-hmm. in in Scotland or Wales or somewhere but it's an absolutely beautiful mm-hmm. village it's so beautiful i completely it inspired me to when i wrote this screenplay unproduced screenplay mm-hmm. 99 days of vampire oh, yeah, yeah. script uh-huh. it was that set uh, that like you know inspired me like i saw that and i was like I had never seen anything like it depicted so beautifully in a movie. So in the keep, the thing is the Nazis come into uh, the Carpathian Mountains in Romania and take over this village. They, hey, we need to do some work here. We're taking, there's this keep over here. We're going to make that our home base and just everybody just stay the fuck out of yeah, our and way. Yeah, everybody wants to be at the Russian front, like for the big glory battle. Like, oh, we should be at the front. We should be at the front. I'm, which, I mean, I can't imagine any soldier actually realistically thinking I want to go to Well, but okay, but their <laughs> their whole reason for saying that is like, but, but the Russian front is sent here. The Russian front is just starting. So like, oh, in just a matter of moments, when we, yeah. once we bring Russia to its knee, that's part of their, yeah. like, their, Victory shall their be joke. Ours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should be wrapping this up, you know, within weeks. Yeah, but it, none of them really want to be there on this detail, just like, you know, looking at this old, you know, pile of stones. And so when you get into the keep, you see that it's uh, seems like hundreds or at least a hundred silver crosses 
that are kind of yeah, they're actually around. nickel. They're described as nickel, nickel yeah. initially. And so uh, two German soldiers left there during the night. Go, hey, I, this is this is silver. Let's steal this shit. Mm-hmm. So they start trying to pry off one of the 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 silver things, and that. Whatever has been kept in the keep, it, it, it unleashes it. Yeah. And it's, it's in fact kind of drawing them to it. It's like it's yeah, yeah. revealing this nickel, which has been presented as nickel, mm-hmm. as silver. And they're like, it's silver. Yeah. 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 This, it is yeah. silver. And they start trying to pull it out. And in doing so, they end up pulling out kind of a, mm-hmm. a capstone of some kind that yeah, yeah. reveals this vast, vast, vast underground hellish cavern. Yes. Then that ends up killing those two soldiers. And now, you know, this thing is just kind of killing random German soldiers almost every night. And so Jürgen Prochnow, who's in, who's in charge of uh, the Germans, first they think it's uh, resistance people fighting amongst uh, the Romanians. And so they're threatening him with this and they're threatening and him with that. he's supposedly kind of the good Nazi, you know, sort of like somebody who would have been like in the Navy or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. He's sort of like, More oh. the Luftwaffe kind yeah, of guy. Yeah, sort of a, yeah. a traditional. Oh, I mean, he's, he's I, cynical about the. Frankly, to tell you the truth, one of the better things about the movie is while they're kind of casting him as the good Nazi, he's not that good. He's all, you know, he's all crowing. Well, you know, he still believes like, they're going to win. Yeah, exactly. He's all crowing we're still about, the mas- oh. We'll, we're still going to be the masters of the world. Russia will be nothing. I mean, <laughs> when they usually cast the good Nazi, he's not really down with the cause. No, no. Prochnow is no, down with the cause. <laughs> all right. Uh, but while he's down with the cause, He's smart enough to realize, okay, look, this, despite all appearances, it's obviously not these Romanians with, who got the balls to be killing our soldiers when they were saying, we will kill everybody in this village unless you turn over the saboteur. Like, they would have turned them over at some point, you know, so he knows that that's not the case. But anyway, enough of this shit has happened that now all of a sudden the Gestapo shows up. And they're going to get to the bottom. And we get a little bit of extra juice suddenly. The promise of that opening Absolutely. comes back. And then leading the Gestapo is the best performance in the entire movie. Absolutely. And that's Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> leading the Gestapo. And he is... Yes. I'm not even a Gabriel Byrne fan, No, me per neither. Se. Me neither, really. But he's kind of... He was born to play that part. It, it's He's got... Like, he looks right in the haircut. He's got, like, a face that, I mean, Gabriel Byrne is... I don't even, look, here's the thing about that. I don't even know if he's that great in the part. He's just what the movie needs at that time. Well, he's a perfect he's villain a, at is, that time. He is the villain of the movie. Yes, and he looks... The monster is not the villain. He is the villain. And he looks great. Uh, yeah, no, the the the, you know, the monster is, is strangely a, 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 a B-villain, all right, yeah. by comparison. Uh, and he looks great in his Gestapo uniform. That's all the bad guy side, which is the interesting part of the movie. Yeah. The completely uninteresting part of the movie is all the good guy stuff, which uh, most unconvincingly deals with uh, uh, Scott Glenn's magical character because apparently he's angel character. Yeah, he's an angel basically. Or he's like or the warrior that time has has deemed the good one to fight against this evil and, warrior if the evil thing in the keep is ever released. And and time is a good thing to deem him that because his name is Glocken, which yeah, yeah, in yeah. German you know implies a kind of clock-like regularity. Whatever this is that's being held this 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 
horrible evil that's been held in the keep for like hundreds of years, once it's been released, even though we don't quite know what it is, all of a sudden, a hundred miles away, Scott Glenn just materializes, yeah. you know, as this kind of wakes up. Yeah, but, but no, it's almost From like it. But like, like there's a there's a hotel room, and he's he's just all of a sudden there, and so he got dressed as a sailor. Yeah, so he's got his so he's got with his journey. He's got his journey. Yeah, with the box. <laughs> Don't even go into the box. It's not worth talking. It about. is worth talking about. <laughs> okay, well, we're you, gonna talk I, about I, I that let, fucking I, box. I will let you talk about <laughs> it. The box is a cool thing <laughs> until it just holds a pole. <laughs> like you could have just gotten one of those in the Carpathian Village. But now look, Don't have I am not a fan box. of the Scott Glenn stuff. But the Scott Glenn stuff is good by comparison to the Ian McKellen. Well, stuff. and he is actually highly effective looking. Like he looks angelic. His eyes, and I think they must have contacts in him or something. But he has a kind of ethereal. I think he quality. looks weird. I think that the, those well, eyes make angels him look, are weird. Makes angels him look weird. weird. Angels yeah. are weird looking. What what I don't like is whenever they try to up the ante because it's enough that Scott Glenn is there and he looks at maybe a woman or something and she looks at him and is you know taken but uh instead they do these like they're constantly trying to push the like this rotoscope effect over his eyes like wow you don't need to do that he looks weird enough yeah no i know <laughs> you don't need to push the effect no he looks like fucking submariner and, yeah. uh, and effects <laughs> effects are one of the problems with this movie and it mm -hmm. may not be the fault of anybody mm -hmm. because uh wally Weavers, the vfx uh supervisor on the film died right after production mm -hmm. was complete and apparently nobody knew how to complete what had been planned so there was mm -hmm. a lot of reshooting, mm -hmm. I'm told. And mm -hmm. then uh, Alex Thompson moved on to do other things. And so many of the reshoots were done by a different DP, which is why the interiors look so bleak and dark mm -hmm. and really hard to see things. Alex Thompson's one of my favorite DPs. And for the movie to uh, suddenly get murky and weirdly well, lit I, I, with I, odd lighting sources that... Well, odd light, well, the whole movie... The whole, yeah. Well, that, you're bringing it up as if odd lighting sources <laughs> develop in the last 45 minutes. The whole film is set up with like, there's no structure or this light is coming from. Not only that, they even have that one light that they put every actor to stand in. Yeah. <laughs> stand in this light. Stand okay. in the way of it. We're going to be yeah, backlit. Jorgen Prock now sits in it, okay? Then when uh, <laughs> Gabriel Byrne shows up, he sits in it and has a scene almost as if just to sit in the light. Yeah. Well, he has to find its light. But where the film, I think, really goes bad is all the stuff that deals with the villagers. Because the minute that Robert Protsky, who plays the, the priest in the village, the minute he shows up like looking orthodox like- Orthodox priest, like yeah, a Catholic priest. Looking like Leo McCarran, all right, with a phony yep. brown wig and a phony brown beard. Whatever reality you had about the Nazis coming into the village and taking it over is destroyed. And then, then they start talking and you don't buy the way the villagers speak or the way they talk. Well, and they, they don't really ever design a life in that village either. No, you buy the Nazis. You just don't buy the, you know. Yeah, you, like, no, I mean, literally, Gabriel Byrne is so convincing and so commanding in his performance. Well, frankly, and then but you have all these. It's, it's actually one of the big problems with a lot of uh, World War II movies is when they, they have these little villages. Because they spend time on the tanks and doing this and doing that, but they don't spend time on those villages. So every place just seems like they're taking over Brigadoon. Yeah. <laughs> and with just like crappy extras yeah. hanging around. So the thing is, in Dachau, they have medieval... Um, professor played by Ian McKellen and his daughter, who are the ones that know what's going on as far as about the keep is concerned. So when the Gestapo is demanding 
we need to know things. He goes, well, the two people that that know about the keep and are, are the world experts, you have them in Dachau. If you send them over here, they can straighten us out. So they send them over there. and um, By a teleportation device. Because yes. they're there like that. Yeah. And Ian McKellen gives what has to be the worst performance of his career. It's almost like he's doing Jimmy Stewart. It's a and then the makeup isn't helping. It's a wig or what the hairpiece isn't helping. Well, I mean, well, frankly, I mean, who he looks like and sounds like is he sounds like the old gray doctor in the wheelchair that's in uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right. <laughs> I yeah. mean, even the wig looks yeah. dissimilar. He's this doddering old guy, and he and he's using this horrible voice. I mean, one, it's 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 an American accent that's horrible, but it's a horrible old man American. Well, it's kind of talking a little bit like this. Well, like, that sounds better than what he. Well, that's uh, so kind of like a Jimmy Stewart. No, it, it literally, it, <laughs> it's 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 like a bad community theater production. And he looks. I mean, it even like the wig, all his the look looks like a bad community theater production. So basically, Ian McKellen starts investigating, and then the this powerful being that has been let loose presents itself to Ian McKellen. Molasar. And you know, this whole keep was built 200 years ago or however, a thousand years ago, however long it was built to keep this thing from getting out of hell and, 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 and ruling the world. <laughs> that sounds like Castle Wolfenstein. I'm in. Yeah. And so then Ian McKellen ha- ends, On that alone. ends up having this uh, of conversation with the creature and he's telling the creature about the Nazis out there, what he's doing. And they're like, hey, how dare they do this to my people? I will destroy them. But first you have to let me get out of here. But then I, then I, I will destroy them. And you, you were speaking as the monster. Yeah, right yeah, then. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Because it was more like, you know, oh, what have they done with my people? Yeah. Like it was much more like, uh, you sounded a little bit like Ian McClellan. Yeah, probably. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I saw this film, I took a bunch of my friends from like college. Mm-hmm. To, yeah, we're going to see Michael. Man, it's totally cool. And we're seeing it, and it's it turns into like it starts off well enough, and then it starts getting a little muddled and confused. And by the time those guys, those two German soldiers, are trying to pry the silver cross out of it, no, that's all when it's good. <laughs> well, it's still good, but like at this point, suddenly the music goes so over the top, and suddenly he's shooting everything in such a highly stylized way that it removes you from any kind of reality that has been established beforehand. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems with this movie is the reality of the film is a little clumsy. It, it, it takes big jumps in time. The, the creature is designed by Enki Bilal, the comic book artist, the Uh French comic book artist. I've also heard that Michael Mann was changing his mind about what the thing should look like. Well, it looks like, it looks like a cross between Bella and Basket Case and that weird uh, Jim Henson and the Muppets used to be on Saturday Night Live. They had that one big stone yeah. statue that would talk every once in a while. Rah, rah, rah. You know, it looks like that, yeah, too. Exactly. <laughs> he looks like a fucking Muppet. Well, and so, <laughs> like, you know, suffice it to say, everything comes together. And then we're kind of introduced to the logic of the movie. And this is where I really started breaking it down because it's just like it just felt like they were making it up as they went along at this point, which I kind of think they might have been. There's this amulet that's holding the monster in the cave and the the monster needs a human servant, which is going to be the doctor. And because they're sort of a confederate, because the monster or the the creature, uh, Molasar, Mm -hmm. is, you know, supposedly some kind of- If you let me out of here, I will wipe out the Nazis. Ancient Judaic uh, demon of some kind. Yeah, yeah. yeah, No, I mean, no, 
it's the part that works and what damns the part that doesn't work is the fact that the monster actually is a golem. Well, it, you know, he that, gets himself into the golem. Which, which, is, which makes it sound like the Ian McKellen character should be more of a rabbi than the scientist guy. Well, and, and it, uh, it, that would make a lot more sense because <laughs> like when you go back to Rabbi Lowe, who uh, was the one with the original golem yeah. and pulling the Shem out of the mouth because his, and because I had a problem originally with the, uh, um, I, I'm just going to say the ending of the movie. So fast forward if you don't want to hear it. But, uh, you know, Ian McClellan has a change of heart. And I just didn't buy his change of heart. You know, the golem is used to basically protect, uh, you know, the Jews from the anti-Semitism mm-hmm. of the Holy Roman Empire at that time. Of, yeah. Uh, emperor whoever who was well, uh, running big, everything and he actually when he sees the golem growing mm-hmm. and getting bigger and bigger and bigger he realizes it will grow so big that it will overwhelm the world mm-hmm. if he if he doesn't you know Put a stop, stop it. it and he pulls the shem out of its mouth which is the uh, magical mm-hmm. name of god written on a mm-hmm. cloth or paper and uh, and that ceases it and it turns to dust and so i think what he's trying to do is he's trying to kind of mirror this choice but it's done in a very clumsy way, and, a, and frankly, and I love Michael Mann, and done and done in that bad action movie way where everything's being said while yeah. wind machines are blowing and special yeah. effects are going, and the and, music and, is know. so hot that you can't hear anything that's yeah, going everyone's on. Everyone's talking at the it has to scream over the wind machines, and might as well be it's a cacophony. It might as well be National Treasure. And I love Michael Mann. <laughs> I think he's one of the last great users of cinematic vocabulary. I, I love like the I think his work in The Insider and like Manhunter. Like you know how much I love yeah. a lot of his work. Um, this was crushing because I, mean, I went, I took all my friends to, to go see this movie. even say the name, the insider in the same sentence as this movie just shows the dichotomy. Between, I mean, it almost seems sacrilegious to bring up a real movie like the insider in yeah. comparison to the keep. Michael Mann ends this movie with like, at, at a point when you're just like, what the fuck am I looking at? Boom, a film by Michael Mann, and he just doubles down on ownership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, he does movie. that, yeah. He proudly takes ownership of yeah. what he's just done. And when his name appears, it drew guffaws from us. It, <laughs> we it, laughed. It, it, we did, but I thought about it later. And there's something about owning your embarrassment, owning it as much as you, and you may not have experienced embarrassment <laughs> with, your, <laughs> with your work. I have. Uh-huh. I've experienced, you know, a, uh, a particularly tough production mm-hmm. where everything went wrong. You know, I mean, a few things went right, but most everything was just a disaster. <laughs> and it's just like you come out of it and you're like, what the fuck? And at a certain and point. And that movie was Pulp Fiction. No, yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it was actually, it was actually a TV pilot I did called Mr. Stitch. Yeah. And it was such a painful experience for me at the end. And after I had made it, I, I was so, it was my monster. Uh-huh. I was embarrassed of it. It was like, it hit, it wasn't at all anything even close to what I wanted it to be. And like, all I could see was the terrible production and it hurt so bad uh, that it even existed. And then several years later, I, I bumped into another filmmaker friend of mine who's like, uh, Christoph Gantz, the guy mm-hmm. who did uh, yeah. Brotherhood of the Wolf. And he did a little Lovecraft movie at one point, and he said, oh, it's an embarrassment. You have to own it. You have to treasure it. Yeah. <laughs> and so ever since then, I've just treasured it. It's my child. It's a little bit of a weirdo. I am maybe the only person who loves it, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I do love it. And, I, and there's something about Michael Mann just accepting ownership because we know that this movie was a troubled production. When we got through watching it, I just said, all right, that was a fucking fiasco. 
Yeah, it and was. It's a fiasco. But it wasn't entertaining. But what was fascinating about it is to see a guy who has become one of cinema's great stylists trying to be a great stylist before he knows his shit. Now, he was able to pull it off with, if you ask me, Michael Mann only works when he's dealing with the 20th century. <laughs> his style is very well suited for our modern times. And it's, and it's, and I think there's a particularly just something about Michael Mann doing crime stories. I think that I, I, there's something a little lost when he's not doing a crime story with the exception of the insider, which they try to make as much like a crime story as they possibly can. I mean, there's even, apparently there's assassins after, uh, uh, it's insinuated that there's assassins after Russell Crowe at some moment. So uh, I absolutely love the cinematic language that he's using inside of the insider. And that's actually one of the reasons I, he's almost like Douglas Sirk in that movie. Mm -hmm. There's a moment where Al Pacino is, I mean, I'm sorry, um, uh, Russell Russell Crowe is looking out at the sea Mm -hmm. and he's trying to decide what to do with his future. And there's (laughs) Looking out at the sea. Okay, the Michael Mann it's shot. It's a classic right. Michael yeah, Mann the, shot. The wall, yeah, the the wall of glass behind you that has a, a beach yeah. going on. And there is a simple. <laughs> Doesn't is, matter if you're a regular cop, you could afford a house on the beach with a wall <laughs> of glass. Well, it's, he's standing on the beach, and there's a single line of the horizon with blue and blue. Yeah, and it's just that. And you see him kind of in the extreme foreground. You're looking a little bit behind his ear, looking at it. Then suddenly. Al Pacino approaches him from behind. He's hey, you're ready to go. And he turns to look at Al Pacino, who's behind him. And the camera pans with him. And it pans to see what's just to his left, which is all these police cars and mm-hmm. like and, and like flashing lights. And he's supposed to go in and yeah, yeah. Know, to the courtroom or whatever he's supposed to do. And it's abject chaos. Mm-hmm. And it's, be- it's a beautiful moment. And when he finally cuts away, before we know, what is he going to do? Is he going to like testify or not testify? He, he cuts back to this wide shot and it shows... Russell Crowe on one side of the frame and Al Pacino on the other and this palm tree just cutting the frame in half, Mm -hmm. showing their division. Michael Mann, at this point in his career, is commanding of cinematic vocabulary. He's using a grammar and a vernacular. He's one of my very favorite stylists. And and that is why this ultimately ends up being interesting because, frankly, it's interesting to see a great cinema stylist before he was that good. He's not in control of his style. He's constantly lost. And when he's lost, he goes to slow motion. When he's lost, he throws in more smoke. Yeah. When he's lost, he cranks up the music. But you know what we can (laughs) thank The Keep for? Because of the perhaps experience, perhaps uh, reception of The Keep, Mm -hmm. he retreated into television and did Miami Vice. Yeah. Which absolutely altered culture in a massive way. (laughs) Like it defined rather culture. It did. Okay, speaking of which, Band of the Hand yeah. is far better than The Keep. <laughs> yeah, you were a huge, I remember when Band of the Hand was in the store, you were pushing that film like it was nobody's business. Well, I, I, I like the opening credits, okay? The opening yeah. credits and with that, the Bob Dylan and, song and was even, pretty good. I think there. Cat Squad, didn't we also have that in? Uh, yeah, well, okay, well, Cat Squad is way better yeah. than The Keep. <laughs> like those were Cat like Squad a couple of the ones that you were good. like. Cat Squad is one of Freakin's best things yeah. of the 80s, yeah. the first one. You love Cat Squad. I happen to have in my possession here the December 1983 issue of Film Comment, which has an uh, interview with Michael Mann talking about The Keep, written by Harlan Kennedy. Now, I actually remember reading this when it came out. This is the part that stayed in my mind. And when I read it again, it was the part that jumped out at me again as well. It's not particularly about The Keep, but the interviewer asked him, how important to you is the use of the widescreen? 
Mm. And Michael Mann replies, very. It's important to me for two reasons. One, because this is an expressionistic movie that intends to sweep its audience away, be very big, to have them transport themselves into this dream reality. So they're in those landscapes. They're with the characters. You can't sweep people away in 185 and mono. Also, I'm not just interested in passive filmmaking, in a film that's precious and small and where it's up to the audience to bring themselves to the movie. I want to bombard an audience, a very active, aggressive type of seduction. I want to manipulate an audience's feelings for the same reason that composers write symphonies. And that could never be done in 185. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, well that, that, can, that can be done in 185. I, I it can know, be I'm done in 133 if you saying. want to. Yeah, I'm just saying. Nevertheless, I, I, I appreciate this. I, mm-hmm. well, I'm going sure. to read that last part again. I want to manipulate an audience's feelings for the same reasons that composers write symphonies. Uh, the guy follows it up. Well, what are your feelings about ultimately seeing this big screen film on television and video cassette? But the sides cropped off. Yeah, good question. Are you pushing your compositions towards middle of the screen? No. <laughs> Whatever happens to it when it goes on television or video, that's the breaks. I can't do anything about that, but I can do everything about the cinema experience, which for me is obviously primary. So the shots are composed for the big screen and the film is designed to be effective for theatrical audiences. And if it does that job, then it's going to do well on TV. Well, and I remember that. I remember that. Like, it was yesterday, reading that in 1983. What's amazing is hearing a guy who's so powerful with the small screen yeah. at his young age. Well, it's his sophomore effort well, well, doing be, a uh, He'll a be embracing the small screen, like, in about a year from now, yeah. all right? It's about, it's, about, it's about a year and a half away from Miami Vice, <laughs> yeah, he's still, which is where he really makes his name. He's still full of the pretension of... Yeah. Uh, nah, yeah, that's, not, that, that's right on. That's not pretension. That's, 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 uh, that's, a, that's a mission statement. The one last thing I got to say about the keep it lit, I want to say about it. Okay. But maybe one of the weird things that I think there's a connection to my work. For whatever reason, I didn't see the keep when it, like, when it first, first opened. I saw it, I think, at the World Cinema. And naturally, I thought the whole first 15 minutes, when the Nazis take over the, the village and all the sorcerer referencing and the tangerine dream score and grills of trucks and tires splashing through mud in the yeah. rain and Nazis sitting behind the texture of the film. Nazis sitting behind dirty windshields. It was fucking amazing. The, the, incredible, right, was, the incredible long lens tilt that, yeah. that occurs at the beginning oh, yeah, and, the, and then lands perfectly at those trucks that are, oh, that are like miles that away. tilt shot is amazing. It's, it's um, just simply stunning. So you have all that, but then it has the scene when the when you know the 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 evil incarnate uh, is having his big scene with Ian McKellen, and then he has that moment. Well, you know the well the Nazis they're they're exterminating the Jews. They are. <laughs> Who dares do this to my people? I will destroy them. And then Ian's like, "Yes, that's exactly what we want." Well, that was exciting. Yeah. I couldn't wait for that. That was to happen. the interesting dynamic of the movie. And then naturally, that never happens. Yeah. Of course it never happens. That's a, that's a real movie. That yeah. would be fantastic. That never happens. But the effect of that, and then just a the little movie you're, you make in your mind of what that would be, yeah. uh, was not lost on me for Inglorious Bastards. There yeah. is this, from the moment I saw that scene, a little 
seed was put in me that someday I should make a movie that delivers on that scene. Wow. And I did. (laughs) Hey, did you know that Mayfair Games made a board game out of this? No, and, I didn't. And I found that out, and I thought you should know that, because we should try to track that down. Yes, because I, I, I collect board games that have to do with movies and TV shows. I would... Okay, despite <laughs> everything I said here, I would happily play a, a keep board game. In fact, I dare say it'll definitely be more entertaining than the movie. <laughs> We're going to find out. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, the keep was a fiasco. Yeah. I wonder how present-day audiences would feel about it. Let's find out. Well, let's find out. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me. Your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Gala. Hi, Quentin. Hi, Roger. Hello. So I watched this movie with my mom on like a girl's chick flick night (laughs) and we had so much fun. Mm -hmm. We actually really liked it. This movie was originally extremely long. Yeah, it was like three and a half, four hours long. Like three and a half or four hours long. The version that is available is 96 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So you can only imagine how much has cut out of this movie. Now... Everyone at this table, I'm sure, has fought. 105 minutes, it says here. Oh, well, I have a 96-minute version that I watched, so maybe I watched oh, some wow. other version. Wow. They're, they're still cutting it. Still <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so Quentin's version on VHS is longer. I watched it's the... Like, it's like La Regla de Jou. They kept cutting Believe it. Believe me, I wish my it. version was 86 minutes. <laughs> all right, or 96, 96 yeah. minutes. The worse it got. <laughs> and I'm sure everyone at this table has fought against a producer at one point in time to try to save something important in your movie, so I can only imagine Michael Mann having to cut down his film to 100 minutes. But you know what? At 96 minutes, how I watched it, this movie's made for me. Mm-hmm. I love 90-minute movies. Gala will fight me if I try to put on a 100-minute movie. And she's like, don't you have any 90-minute movies we can watch? Yeah, <laughs> so, no, no, I love, <laughs> listen, if it's, if it's Bud Butterker in 70 minutes, I'm in. Yeah, yeah. If it's like 121 minutes, eh, I don't know if I got time for that. <laughs> but I love this movie. It's Fun. I don't really care if the rules make sense or not because I'm not here. That's to, my least. That's my least problem. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not here. <laughs> that's to like my follow. biggest problem. Like the when when Scott we Glenn goes know. into the cavern, like the the whole premise of it is that pole in the box is meant to hold the flashlight, which is the amulet. Yeah. But was he supposed to actually go into the very bottom of that thing? Oh, retreat no, and, and then what? fight the creature with that? I mean, it frankly, I it. actually kind of like that because that just shows what a piece of shit we've been watching all along. <laughs> <laughs> it's the reveal. But you know, Roger, it's really funny you say that, though, because you, you always. Quite, or me. No, you. No. <laughs> it's, I'm going to call you out because it's really funny. You always tell me logic in a movie, plot doesn't matter as long as there's story. As long as it's as interesting. Long as, as long as it's interesting. interesting. I'm having fun. I'm watching the entire time. My mom is actually watching the entire time. 
So yeah, I had fun. Uh, I like the atmosphere of the movie. I love. So like the- when the sex scene happened, you and it was like chick flick time. You guys were together. See, and I my, went and saw and it with my mom and I actually thought that was a very tasteful sex scene. See, I went with my college friends and like the, suddenly the movie went haywire with music and it was like suddenly a rock. It was like a who concert one. or okay. something. And then tasteful is not what I'm looking for in a sex scene. All right, <laughs> you know. Maybe you're not but, watching a movie with your mom, Quentin. That's true. Okay, yeah. but you know, but you know, all the jazzercise angles that they keep doing oh, yeah, they, they're, they're, they're doing their it, yeah. <laughs> Quentin, there are 108 crosses in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, 108 is a spiritual number. It's also the amount of stitches on a baseball. Oh. Um, it is uh, the Japamalist Buddhist Hindu prayer beads. Um, it's The number itself is all about attaining a goal. There's only one thing I don't like in mm-hmm. the movie. Uh-huh. There's a few things I like. Like I love Gabriel Byrne. Mm-hmm. I think he's really sexy in this. I hate to admit that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he's you, really sexy. I actually wrote it down You think the Nazi here. is sexy? That's well, no, no. Disturbing. Nazi thinks Gabriel Byrne is sexy. <laughs> no, no. Gabriel he's Byrne. Irish. He's Irish. Look, you think the Irishman is sexy? I don't think the other guy is very sexy, but his line, there are only two doors, one in, one out, and the one out is a chimney, is such a chilling line that yeah. you know that he is the villain of the movie. Oh, he's in the right movie, and he's not given a proper villain's death. He just yeah. kind of dies. It's the muddledness of the movie. The movie obviously thinks that the creature is its A villain and and um, Gabriel Byrne is its B villain. But us as the viewer, we want the creature to be killing Nazis. And so yeah, therefore- The, the creature is barely registering, all right? <laughs> it's Gabriel Byrne is the villain yeah. and the best performance in the whole movie. So he's the only one we're really truly following. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But the only thing I really did not like in this movie was the relationship between Ian McClellan and his daughter. Mm -hmm. It was really creepy. I don't know how to describe it, but the way that they were touching each other and like how he rubs her back when they hug each other reminds me of when she's having sex with Glocken. I can't describe it. it's they not, almost are gonna die. I mean, the, like the, there Jesus. are scenes though where they're not almost gonna die. They're they're fine. He's he's rejuvenated himself and he's in the keep and whatever. I mean, yes, he's gonna maybe die eventually. Everyone dies, but that was just the only uncomfortable part of the movie. Besides that, I love the movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I picked mine up. Uh, Forty dollars, uh, Paramount VHS. Um, I think we got the same one. Yeah, yeah we have the exact same one. Oh, good. <laughs> and uh, Video Archives picked up theirs for $69. And anyone out there in podcast land, you can find this movie all over. It is everywhere. Except if you watch it on Amazon, the quality of black is terrible. And by the way, that quality of those blacks were shot by another DP other than Alex Thompson. Just a reminder. And that is The Keep. And now we're on to the second film. And it is 1997's The Relic, directed by Peter Hyams. The great Peter Hyams. The the, (laughs) I-do-it-all Peter Hyams. From the producer of Aliens and Terminator 2. 33% homo sapien. Pardon? What are you talking about? Gradual extinction of the human race. The Relic. Rated R. Starts Friday, January 10th. The Relic, what co-hit the keep, will be playing August 27th and 28th on glorious 35mm film at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. For further information, go to thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema. Always on film. Uh, this uh, tape that we watched, that Quentin and I watched, uh, was uh, released on Paramount Home Video. 
our second Paramount home video in a row. It is an out of your seat suspense thriller. Don't miss it, says Jim Ferguson of something I've never heard of. Preview Central. (laughs) (laughs) Come in if you dare. It's opening night gala for a new exhibit at Chicago's Natural History Museum is underway. But be advised, something terrifying wants to make sure no one ever leaves. Penelope Ann Miller, Tom Sizemore, Linda Hunt, and James Whitmore star in this effect-packed thriller shocker that gives a haunted house movies a terrific new setting. And the non-human star, brought to head-ripping life by Jurassic Park Oscar winner Stan Winston, is something no creature fan can let slip by. And then there's a number of quotes on the back of here. The creature can hold its own with alien, writes Chicago Tribune critic Gene Siskel. <laughs> okay, that's going too yeah, far. Yeah. I mean, drastically too far. It holds its own. Does it? Does it really, Gene? Sorry, Gene. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's beyond the pale. He doubled down and said, when the last reel begins, the special effect is truly awesome. Let the panic begin. A thrill ride. <laughs> we like this movie and we don't agree with that. <laughs> Especially the last reel. <laughs> Had you seen this movie? You'd seen this movie before, Yeah, I'd right? seen it before. I saw it when it came out. All right. uh, I saw it when it came out. Where'd you see it? When did I see it? Uh, I think I saw it at the Galaxy. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. It yeah. sounds like a Galaxy movie. I think I saw it at the Galaxy. Then um, we screened it at um, the New Beverly, and so that I I got a copy of the print, and I, I just screened it myself. I go, wow, this is this is a lot better than I remember it being. This is this is pretty goddamn good. Uh, and so that was about six years ago. So I haven't I hadn't seen it in about six years. So this is like my my third time seeing it. Um, the thing that's crazy about it is to describe the plot would sound just exactly like the keep. <laughs> it's it's the it keep. Works. It's the keep without Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> In a museum. Uh, what's good about both of them are the two opposite ends of the spectrum. What's good about the keep is Michael Mann's ambition. Now he's not able to fulfill his ambition but the film is just full of ambition we watched that horrible uh the promise is there we watched that horrible leviathan yeah. uh, the other day which we were hoping we were going to really like and we watched leviathan it was terrible it actually started giving me bad feelings about other movies no it, <laughs> it, we watched it right after the keep and it actually taint, tainted the keep not the keep the relic it actually tainted the relic a little bit all right uh i wish i hadn't watched it there uh but then you asked the question like, okay well which is better the keep or leviathan oh well, the keep is drastically better there's no there's no comparison you know because michael mann is trying to do something now what makes the relic interesting is frankly its lack of ambition. What's neat about it is all the studios, part of their schedule that they do every year is they make, at least back then, they would make two, three or four or five or six horror movies. You know, it would be cheap movies for them. But they would look pretty good for, you know, especially compared to the straight to video junk that's out yeah, there. The only analog today is Blumhouse. And I'm, those are just so cheap that they're, yeah. they don't have the high quality production value of something like mm-hmm. The Relic or The Keep. And the thing about it is like, you know, so the, the studios will make this. Uh, they're not going to win Oscars for this, but they, they figure that they'll, they'll, make a, they'll make a monster movie. Or they'll make a double movie. Or they'll make a supernatural horror film. 
they'll pick a week where there's not a whole lot going on and then they release it and then it does maybe it wins the weekend and then it, it does okay the next week and then after that it's done and then it's now just send it out on on dvd and and, and sell it to theaters it's part of that year's slate yeah and then uh you know and it's 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 done by the studio to just service an audience and uh make some quick cash so that's what the relic is now they've got gail ann heard producing it and they've got Peter Himes directing it. Now, Peter Himes has kind of had been around for like a long time, but he's kind of worked his way down. Yeah, he starts off like as a writer with Telephone, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, with uh. Charles Bronson. Yeah. And then Capricorn One, which when I was a kid, Capricorn oh, yeah. One was like this amazing film. And then it was like, boom, this guy was and like anybody, the, and he was the like studio a, guy who would come in and give you a really good- Well, I mean, like I think Peter Himes in the 70s is one of the most, and in the 80s, is one of the most underrated action directors. He does- action set pieces sure. that are just fantastic. And even looking at like, like he's done some movies that- They're always derivative that, a little that, bit. That don't work. Like the, the Presidio doesn't work at all, but something like- uh, the, uh, Running the, scared. The Narrow Margin. The Narrow <laughs> the Margin is terrific. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, the Narrow Margin is, I, I forgot how good that was until I saw it again. Um, but by the end of the 90s, he had kind of like, you know, he had just done the two- Time Cop and Sudden Death. Again, yeah, Sudden, sudden death, death is pretty good, too. And maybe Sudden Death was right before this. No, Sudden Death, yeah, I think Sudden Death is what, yeah. is, I'm guessing, is what was right before this. And that's a or, really or good- Time Cop, it's one of And those. that's a really good, well, Sudden Death definitely came after Time yeah. Cop. And Sudden Death is a really good diehard ripoff. Peter Himes and Gail Ann Hurd are just too good for this project. They just really outclass this project. This is the kind of film that that a, a, a Rupert Ringwright would normally be directing or a Darren Serafian mm-hmm. would be directing. That's the kind of people you would imagine or Stephen Hopkins sure. would, would be directing. When you get Peter Himes doing a silly little monster movie with a, not even a B-level cast, a C-level cast... There are some things I don't like about it, but it's a hell of a fun monster movie. It's basically a monster movie. And it, it, and the back of the box is right. Yeah, everything is all worked around the uh, the museum, but that really works. And frankly, the, the, the two lead actors in the film, uh, Penelope Ann Miller and um, Tom Sizemore, I don't think they've ever been better. Now, I actually really like Penelope Ann Miller and her little bit in uh, uh, Biloxi Blues. I loved her in this movie. I thought she was totally, like, charming in the film. I think she's fantastic in the movie. I think she's a wonderful lead. And I think Sizemore, who I'm normally always bored by, he's terrific in it. Yeah, and he has, like, the thankless job of, like, pushing the exposition forward. Yeah. (laughs) But he does a good job with it, actually. Yeah, completely. He makes it listenable and fun. Yeah, actually. and the way he barks orders out, I, I buy. You know, he's one of the few times I buy the cop in the monster movie as a real cop. Yeah, he actually feels no. Authentic. He should be like starring in a Law and Order fucking yeah. spinoff or something. He looks. <laughs> it just goes to show what a good atmospheric genre director that Peter Himes is. That he can make a monster movie that's as fun as the Relic. But not that great of a monster. The first half of the movie doesn't show the monster enough. We kind of want to have more of a relationship with the monster so it means more to us. And he saves it for a a bigger reveal. I think that was a mistake. Nevertheless, I'm really enjoying it. I just think I would like to have personalized the monster a little bit more. Then they show us the monster 
Then they show us the monster too much, and now I don't like the monster. Yeah, it's some kind of chimera thing with like alligator body, well, and multiple I, legs. Frankly, and I don't it's like a rat. It's a it's a spider. Frankly, it's this, well, it's I, I like the I like the first introduction of it because it's obviously a puppet. All right, it's obviously a physical yeah, thing that they film. There's a bunch of people inside of that. Yeah, latex. But pretty quickly, it becomes a a, a, a CGI that has the physiology of a of a shaggy dog it has a physiology of a big galooping dog but but with a vagina meets predator mouth (laughs) like almost they always have this like the the whole mouth opens up on every side and and looks like a cross between a flower and a vagina and i'm sure that that was exactly a flower vagina and an asshole and i'm sure that was exactly the thought yeah yeah and predator when it comes to monster movies how the monster got there or who the monster is or how the monster was generated, whatever, I'm pretty easy. You don't need to really sell me on that much. Just keep it simple. Yeah. Keep it simple. You know, I mean, if all of a sudden just there was just a beast in a box that they opened up, I'm okay with that. I don't need a whole lot of shit explained. Now, they explain a bunch of stuff that if you've, Take their explanation all the way. It doesn't add anything to the movie. It's just confusing. Nor does the setup work at all. It doesn't really. The setup really doesn't work. And then even the whole concept of uh, uh, the creature is this one guy that used to be the explorer and... And the insinuation that Penelope Ann Miller once had a relationship with him. Which is very obliquely I mean, so delivered. Com- like, so completely obliquely that it's like, but then they they keep, it's in, the, just, in the last 20 minutes, they keep hitting on it a couple of times without ever saying it. Yeah. But that, that's meant to be evoked. Didn't need it. Didn't want it. Literally, the simplest explanation of the monster would have, would have sufficed for me, and then I wouldn't have asked any more questions. Well, here's what I was able to get from it, because the, the beginning of the movie is really wonky with its mechanics of the mm-hmm. uh, the explorer guy who's sort of like William Hurt in Altered States. Yeah. He's down in South America somewhere. Like Peru He's or something, yeah. searching for something. Uh, he's taken something weird. He flips out, just like William Hurt does in mm-hmm. uh, Altered States, cut to uh, a ship at the docks in, you know, Chile or wherever wherever this was. And uh, he's running around the docks trying to stop them from sending the, the, the whatever he's collected mm-hmm. to the new whatever world. Whatever he's found. Okay, yeah. so already I'm like, wait a minute, something's missing. Like a scene is missing or something's missing. He gets on the ship supposedly to find the stuff to get rid of it. And then we are next shown, story-wise, cinematically, the stuff has been left on the docks. He got on the ship unnecessarily. But then we get to Chicago. Yeah. They're unloading stuff. They've unloaded. It, not like there's been. A, well, again. Uh, ev- nothing makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, like. They the tr- rules don't make sense. Look, they look. They try to. There's a time when the cops are talking. They go, wait a minute. So. Even this tunnel goes all the way from the pier, you know. Like they're to coming the up with cockamamie, ridiculous things. And this movie, like, <clears throat> has tech credits up the wazoo. This is a professional Hollywood production where everybody is doing their job to, you know, to the best of their ability on a big programmer, which is effectively what it is. But the people who are failing at this point are the story executives, are the executives on the film who are developing the screenplay. There's like and there's s- four writers on this damn four. Or I thought were there six, four, five. There were like a. a Bunch of writers, and it shows because mm-hmm. it looks like people were just flying in ideas as they went. And then you've got a you know kind of derivative director who likes to he, he has no problem you know making mm-hmm. running scare 
Bird, for example, as a mm-hmm. derivative film or mm-hmm. you know anything, anything like that. He's got no problem with that. And so he's just taken whatever. And so by the end of the movie, when it is both Alien, Terminator, uh, bits of the thing, like everything is suddenly being thrown well, in. Well, I mean, that's the thing about the very end is like the end is basically just the end of Aliens. Yeah. All right. And uh, like to the point there's like, well, I guess – if you're good to steal it. If you're Gail Ann Hurd, I guess if you just want to do the end of Aliens again, yeah, go for it. All yeah, right? and yeah. like everybody else in the world has ripped off my movie. Why don't I? And we know that Peter <laughs> Hyams doesn't care. He's like, great, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try to do it better. Oddly enough, <laughs> oddly enough, the similarity of it to Aliens actually made it work a little bit more for me because I knew what they were trying to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so when she does actually... Hop into the elevator just as everything goes to hell. I I, I kind of I knew I knew what the plan was because yeah. I'd seen aliens. Yeah, exactly. I knew what the plan. Like, you know was. the territory. You're uh, yeah, in. I knew I knew where I was going on. We both enjoyed this movie, and here we are, kind of ripping it apart. But we enjoyed it. But that's because this movie didn't really take itself seriously like the Keep did. Yeah, like the Keep has this kind of pretension to it mm-hmm. almost. Well, this has no pretension, and this has this no is, pretension. The only pretension of this is what are we going to do that's going to sell the weekend. What does the audience want right now? It doesn't matter what happens in the script before. What do they want now? Frankly, to tell you the truth, when it comes to a slasher film or or a monster movie, I don't need any more than that. Just give me a good one. He's shooting. It's beautifully shot, by the way. Yes. And he's his own cinematographer. He's a very, very good cinematographer. He makes the... the museum come to life. Even that whole little exhibition that it has of like weird superstition things where you have to- He knows how to bring scale. You have to walk through a a series of ladders to get into it. it. It's written in Latin, like abandon hope, all ye who enter. That's actually really clever. I would go. I would go to that. Yeah, I would go to a museum that had that show. And they actually shot at the actual Chicago uh, oh. Field Museum of Natural History. One of the really entertaining parts uh, of of the whole third act of the film is it's the opening night of the exhibit, and all the hoi polloi of Chicago is there, including the mayor and the mayor's wife, and they're all there. It's all set up for like the creature to come out and just. Jump yeah. in the the party and eat a couple of people and and send everybody running. That doesn't exactly happen, but the bodies that the creature has already eaten and, and stored away become revealed. Revealed, and then it just becomes this massive uh, exodus to get out of the building. And that's one of the better directed sequences in the whole film is this mass exodus. And one of the things that's actually of the the, the whole <laughs> yeah. crowd just going ape shit. But one thing that's actually funny is. The crowd does more damage. The, the monster's not even there, and the crowd is just doing tremendous damage. Yeah, people just go crazy, running through windows. Running and- through windows, trampling <laughs> over people. And it's, like, really well done. It's really well staged, and it's, it's like, it, it's, and it's also very funny. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a real crack-up. It's a really entertaining sequence. Now, that leads to one of my problems that I have with the whole third act is... I think they make a terrible error. They make they make a miscalculation because the people are trying to get outside, and then they they've shut the metal doors that that, that lock the. Uh, yeah, this place has like the museum has metal doors, like uh, you know the Star Trek Enterprise has when the yeah, exactly. uh, well, when the well, warp core is about it's to. It's supposed breach. to be like yeah, the Hope Diamond is in there or something. All right, so it's like they've got to have a full on thing. So it like comes its own keep. All right, when the uh, metal doors slam shut. Now, 
Tom Sizemore is not even there. He's somewhere else in the uh, in, in the museum, and and uh, James Whitmore and, and Penelope Ann Miller are somewhere else in the bowels of the building doing something else. And what they do in the movie is the place shuts down, and then like half the people get out, and the other half the people, including the mayor, are are, are stuck in the uh, uh, the museum. Then they kind of have to split the movie up between this one cop who's Tom Sizemore's partner who's got to lead the, the survivors out of the place by going down into the sewers. And then Tom Sizemore and Penelope Ann Miller teaming up to finally destroy this creature. And they kick themselves in the shins, all right, when they do that, because they should have just let everybody get out and everybody's out. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. And then it, now it just becomes our heroes who we like. Yeah, keep it simple. Yeah. Just them trying to, you know, make their bombs and, 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 and stop the creature from doing what it's doing by having to follow these other characters as they go on their trail. It's just, it, it just keeps taking the piss out of itself. Well, I'm sure Peter Hyams is just like looking at his writers and saying, look, there's five of you. Uh, and Gail, you know, you guys solve the story problems. I'm busy shooting. I'm doing it all right now. Like solve the problems for me. All these problems. And I don't think anybody is. All the, I don't think there are either. And all these, look, all these problems are legit. But when I watched the movie, I had a really good time. Like I said, it's the overqualification of Peter Himes on this puny little movie. All right. But done this puny little movie done with all the, you know, the gloss of a Paramount film. The one thing that I will add to the film that I actually think completely works. And not only does it completely work, is now almost the thing that I find the most charming about the movie, is the relationship between Penelope Ann Miller and Tom Sizemore's character. Because through the first half of the film, look, she's just pissed off. She's just, she she might be losing her grant. She's just in a bad situation to some degree or another. Uh, they're, they're busting her balls. That guy should get the grant, Dr. Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Lee should be getting the grant. No, one of the things that's actually really interesting in the movie, they try to make this comic villain out of like her big, uh, uh, her big rival at the uh, museum because he might get the grant that she's, she, he already has a grant, but he might get He's her kind grant of the, as the well. the smarmy super smart guy. She actually even goes to him for help. Yeah. She's so nervous about him getting the grant. It's obvious that she knows he's better than her. So the grant is actually up for grabs. All right. You know, she could be out of work. And And, and he's more of a hustler. He has like a kind of, and she's like, you know, doing other things. And one of the things that, but later in the movie, they actually have him do something really, really shitty to her. And I wish they hadn't have done that. Yeah, I thought that was a betrayal. I thought it was a betrayal too, because I like the fact that she treats him like a, a comic villain, but we don't necessarily look at him that way. He hasn't done anything necessarily and when, villainous. And, when there's a, and where's that moment where she's like looking at the 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 uh, DNA numbers and everything, yeah, yeah. and she's trying to figure it out. And she goes to him and says, do you see something weird about this? And he looks at it and he immediately sees what's yeah. going on and tells her, oh, well, this is not a, you, you have a mistake in your testing because this has got too many different strains of yeah. whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have liked it. I think it would have actually had more meaning in the character if he wasn't made an easy villain, if his villainy just came out of her own yeah, insecurity. If he, had, if he had then used his expertise to then help, he could have still been killed. He doesn't even have to be friendly, all right? <laughs> it's just, he just doesn't have to do I was definitely a majorly villain. I thing. was definitely not celebrating his death when it came. Yeah, yeah I mean, me neither. But by that point, I didn't. They threw away his character when they did that, so I didn't care. Yeah. Uh, um, but Tom Sizemore 
comes in the movie totally on the job. He is there to solve this murder that's happened. He's there to solve it and 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 see if this crazy murderer is still hanging around the uh, the uh, uh, the museum. She doesn't give a fuck about him. It's just a pain in the ass. She doesn't want to have to deal with him. She's pretty dismissive of him, but but in a realistic way. She can't be really dismissive of him. He's a fucking cop. She's not. She 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 keeps on the right side of it, but she's kind of you know uh, she's not necessarily charmed by him. She's focused on her work and what yeah. she's up to, and and like and all, all his questions are just a pain in the ass. And at some problems. point, he goes he goes, look, I'm really busy. I don't really have the time to socialize. He goes. Well, I'm not asking you on a date. I'm asking you about, and he says a, a realistic question that she can answer. She goes, oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, blah, 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 blah. Well, then you need to talk to James Whitmore over here. Yeah. Bring him over here. He's not, she's not into him because she's doing her job and he's not into her because he's doing his job. However, by the final part of the movie in the last 20 minutes, when they're forced to work together- to try the situation to, pulls them together. To bri- yeah, try to bring down the monster- um, you know, he has the right kind of information that he's experienced that brings her along. Mm-hmm. She has the right kind of information about what she knows to bring him along. Without it ever turning into necessarily a romantic situation, their camaraderie actually moved me. It actually meant something to me. And it meant something that it didn't happen until like the last 15 minutes. The last two encounters that they have with each other they give each other, and it's they're only slight smiles. They give each other like half smiles. But there's a lot said in those half smiles. We like both of them. And there's even an aspect that I like. I liked her more when she started liking him. Well, Himes <laughs> is balanced enough to know that uh, he's not going to be able to take it all the way. But they leave all the clues there that the audience needs to know. Like, you know that Sizemore is having a failed uh, marriage. Oh, divorced. He's, divorced. He's, divorced. he's divorced. divorced. That's right. He's fully right. divorced He's now. available. He's just looking for the car. He's and available. apparently so is she because uh, her uh, <laughs> maybe lover is now a dog creature. Yeah, now- <laughs> <laughs> the lover who she despises <laughs> is now a dog creature. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but there was just something about... He thought she was dead for a second. And then when she finds out he's not and versa vice, they have these like, it's these close-ups that they just give these smiles. And on one hand, it's nice in an uncliched way that they did not make them flirt with each other. And now they become a couple. I don't really like that. But in a strange way, I was kind of rooting for these two to get together. And the kind of, dot, dot, dot that's left at the end of the movie is maybe they will. Yeah. Maybe the, he'll, I think he's going to probably take her on a date at some point after the movie's over. I'd like to think that that's the case, yet they didn't have to do a cliche in order to have it happen. Now I'm writing the cliche because that's what, because I like the character so much. I, now I want the cliche to happen, but I'm, I'm, I'm forced to write that myself. Yeah. So despite how broken the movie is, it's still enjoyable enough and you love the characters. I wouldn't say the movie's broken. There's things about it that don't hold water, but at the end of the day, I still really enjoyed well, the movie. I would say, for me, if I have to talk plot, about the monster, I, yeah, yeah, I would say the plot is absolutely broken. The story is rambling along just fine. That's that, how. That's I, an interesting distinction. <laughs> well, for me, 
no, 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 no. You're right. I mean, I'm just. I don't know if everyone's going to be sophisticated enough to get that, but I got well, it. Well, then I'll, let me just, let it. me just uh, postscript it by saying that I view uh, plot as something very simple. There's what six or seven of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, supposedly that you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl. Like these kind of variations on plot. Okay, so you'll go see a movie once for a plot. Mm-hmm. It's not going to draw you back to see the plot because you've probably seen it before. You yeah. might there may be maybe there's a variation on something, but no, the co- plot is what's in Learn Mountain's TV movies now, on TV guide. Right, that's the plot. What <laughs> hangs on the plot is the story, and that's everything that the plot isn't. It's the theme. It's it's the light. It's the You're 100% character. Right. It's all these other elements, and those are enjoyable enough, and deftly enough handled, and professionally enough handled, and beautifully presented you know, by Hollywood people making a Hollywood movie on film at a time when they were still shooting on film, doing a large kind of uh, program. And making an attempt to not just let CGI do everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this was still s- relatively early days in uh, yeah. CGI. In so. fact, and this, uh, in fact, one of the things I didn't- The burning creature CGI, that was probably the most apparent CGI well, moment. The, but when, actually the tongue, worked, when the tongue licks like, her. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that was, it was a bad CGI tongue. Yeah, yeah. I would have much rather a puppet slimy tongue, you know, putting real slime yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that had to be somebody in post saying, God, we need a tongue. We need her to get tongued by this guy. Or else <laughs> we're just not going to know that it was the boyfriend. If that tongue doesn't go out there and like, slither all over and that had to have been a post decision <laughs> so gala yeah what did you think i feel like we watched two completely different movies <laughs> because i love outland Mm-hmm. Outland is like with Sean Connery is amazing. Another Peter Hyams movie. So yeah. I was so excited to watch this movie. On Jupiter's Moon, <laughs> I'm the only law. <laughs> don't mess it up, Mitchell. Well, I love. Don't Al- fuck this up, Mitchell. Yeah, don't fuck this up, Mitchell. <laughs> so I said mess it up. I was thinking the safe version. <laughs> well, I love Outland, so I was so excited to watch this movie. But first off, why is this movie so dark, you guys? Like the lighting. I don't know if it's so dark on the VHS tape, but on the digital copy that I watched, it is so dark that sometimes the entire screen is just black towards the end. Because it's like the museum when the lights are off, all right, at night. I mean, like, come on. This movie might have been great if I could see what was on screen. We might be able to say that there is bad compression in streaming and that it doesn't handle blacks yeah, really well. Yeah, he, his lensing is not too dingy. It's not It's not dim. It's not dim. Just the version she on, saw on the, Yeah, exactly. So Forget about the, seeing it on so 35. On the, so on the VHS. On, on VHS. On VHS. It, it's fine. Okay, so on digital, this movie does not hold up. Next Dr. Margot Green is just so unlikable. <laughs> this woman who just is running around and just like, I just want the goddamn money. Like, okay. Yeah, she wants the grant money. Actually, I like the fact that she is not killing herself to be the f- nicest person in the well, world. She's not to be the nicest person, but she should get what she deserves. Especially in a Hollywood movie where, especially the lead of a, of a you know, the, the sheriff, you know, if, if it was about a 
killer bear and the sheriff that was the person This in almost the town. is about a killer bear. Yeah. Or, <laughs> There's or, some bear DNA yeah. in there. Or the professor, all right, that has done research on the, the, the bear creature or whatever. And then it shows up. You know, they always bend themselves over backwards to make that person really likable and they got a girlfriend and they got a daughter or they got a son or whatever. And they always make them to make them folksy and likable. I like the fact that she's really kind of up her own ass, all right, and <laughs> is just about carving her career whether she deserves it or not. Well, Roger, like, discussed how she, like, puts all, like, the liquids together and she makes the bomb. That was cool, but we didn't see enough of that in the beginning for me to kind of feel connected to her. I just kind of felt like she was, like, this kind of, like, hot to trot, entitled character where poor Dr. Lee is over here, like, busting his balls trying to get this second grant because he clearly needs it. And she's just, I don't know, she wasn't that likable. And Tom Sizemore's character... Yeah, like he's a cop and it's all fine, but I didn't find him too likable either. And so I just kept on losing. Likeable? What is all this likable shit? Well, you know, what I, what I <laughs> Who gives a fuck if you think they're likable? Well, when I watch a movie, Quentin. <laughs> Are they interesting? Well, no. No, they're not. Well, then say that. Because he also has this whole thing that he's really superstitious. Yeah. And that she doesn't believe in anything but science. That never pays off. Where does his superstition ever help him? Just because a character has a quirk doesn't mean that quirk has to have a plot wait, revelation wait, 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 that wears around wait, wait, it. Wait, but uh -huh. they're forcing it down our throat. They d tell him, don't step over the body twice. Don't pick up the thing. Here's my lucky yes. bullet. And here's this entire story of, oh, the bullet should have Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. And that's what it is. But how is that No, that's, that's, You know what's funny, Quinn? He gives her the bullet. He gives her the bullet. He and is that what she makes the bomb out of? She will. No, it, she it saves her fucking life. Maybe that's what it is, is I felt no chemistry between them either. So whereas Quentin wants them to go on a date afterwards, I kind of just want him to get back on the beat. I just keep working and her just go maybe get her grant because Dr. Lee's dead now. I think there's tremendous chemistry between them. I mean, like more than I've ever seen between those two actors with anybody else. Uh, that's for damn sure. I mean, sure. maybe that's not saying much. I don't know. When she starts liking him is when I start liking her more. One of actually the guest star parts that's fantastic is the guy playing the mayor that whole scene that the mayor has on the phone where like like okay that's you the are best going, scene, you that's are the best going, scene in the movie you yeah. are well that's the best acted scene yeah. in the movie yeah. that <laughs> well, it's, it's the most compelling fun scene to watch because the mayor is being such a dick and like but but not he's also being kind of friendly at the same time and then just that actor is that guy's terrific i don't even I have no idea who that guy is no again he comes that, out of nowhere again and it's, one of, it's one of the fun parts about the film is there actually is a fun aspect about it being like the C cast. So it's not like a, a, a Kate Winslet playing the Penelope Ann Miller role or Courtney Cox or it's somebody else from 1997 or 98. And it's not uh, Matthew McConaughey before uh, a Time to Kill. Like in a bigger film, there would be like a name, name character actor playing that mayor instead they got a guy i've never seen before and he fucking kills it he's yeah. just terrific he's a terrific actor <laughs> i agree yeah. that mayor is probably one of the best things with the movie but the problem i have with that scene is he has that amazing line about his wife's cleavage that his wife has bought a dress and her cleavage looks great in it so you better not stop this party and then when you see the wife's dress where's her cleavage yeah i'm looking for it it's not there <laughs> so like the funny line that i'm like oh i can't wait till they have like the, the extra punchline with her cleavage they just don't do it the thing about this movie is it's a programmer. 
Mm-hmm. It's made as escapist entertainment. It's not one of those movies that you're supposed to go see and then talk about at the cafe afterwards and and argue and discuss, the, frankly, the way we are now. <laughs> maybe I it mean, is that. Actually, I don't actually know. maybe it is that. I don't know. This is the kind of movie that a guy should take a girl out on a date to, and you should go watch it, and you should go have lunch or coffee after and be able to discuss the movie. Well, and you, I, I guess you, I guess we are doing it now, so you could. But the one thing Quentin told me before we saw this, he's like. Now, you may have seen this, you may not, but like, this is the kind of movie that you're going to watch and you're going to really probably like just enjoy it. It's a good quality film and everything. You'll probably forget it in two years. <laughs> no, that actually- Forget everything you saw about it. No, it, it actually is, is is true. So I've seen it twice. I saw it when it came out and I saw it about I guess, six six years ago. And I remember enjoying it. I remember like Peter Himes doing a really good job of it. And I also remembered when I watched this six years ago, how how much people at uh, the New Beverly really like it. Yeah, like it's one of those things that's just kind of hung in there pop culture wise right. for those who who did catch it. Um, but nevertheless, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, I remember it takes place in a museum and I remember Penelope Ann Miller and I remember Tom Sizemore, but at a certain point, I don't remember anything that fucking happens. Yeah. You know, well, uh, that'll be the same in about two years. And probably. that'll be, yeah. I mean, I yeah. think maybe because we've talked about it so much, I will, uh, <laughs> you know, but, uh, uh, you know, but at a certain point, I, I had no idea what the fuck was going to happen anymore. <laughs> but there is actually something kind of something to be said about genre product like that. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I was getting at. It's like yeah. people need, you know, a kind of escapist entertainment. We need that of every kind of film, you know? Uh, and there was a time when studios would, they'd sit down and they'd look at their slate and they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to pick up a couple of movies and we're going to, you know, make these movies and we ha- we'll have a slate. We're going to have this romantic comedy. We're going to have these dramas. We're going to have this, these couple of horror movies. And I mean, and- a fi- I'm a film, a film that's like the relic, except better. All right. Was a uh, uh, crawl. The Asia, uh, Alexander Asia film, but the Alex Asia, yeah, the crocodile. Shout out to Alex Asia. Yeah, that's a. I thought that was one of the best movies of that fucking year. I thought uh, in 2019, uh, the the crawl was terrific. I ended up seeing it twice, and again, I saw it twice, and I I forgot what happened at a certain point. It was like the same fucking year. (laughs) And this uh, this movie is based on a book, and it actually in the novel it takes place at the American Museum of Natural History in New York Mm -hmm. but the novel portrays the museum administration in such a bad light that they refused to do the movie even for a seven figure sum Mm -hmm. the only two uh, there were two museums that fit the bill uh, and one of them was Chicago and Chicago's museum really liked this idea so they Mm -hmm. agreed to let them film there oh great Um, I picked up my VHS on eBay for $4.99 it is a Paramount home video just like Quentin's Um, and Four ninety nine. Yeah, four ninety nine. It's really depreciated in value over the years. Wow, good deal. No, oh, relic is a good. Uh, it's a good start <laughs> the, to the, buy. The, the <laughs> found it at the uh, Amoeba uh, used, bin, used yeah. video bargain bin. Yeah, everyone better go quickly get theirs for four ninety nine because I'm sure after this it's gonna be hard to come by. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Now, coming up for our third film that we're going to touch base on, which is different than the other two, The Relic and the Keep, because it's not a horror film slash science fiction film. Instead, it's an Italian comedy from 1980 called Cafe Express, and the film stars uh, Nino Manfredi. Okay, so now, okay, I'm going to read the back of the box of uh, Cafe Express, which won't tell you jack shit, so I'm going to have to explain it a little bit. Um, Cafe Express, a lighter side of human nature. He can be extremely charming, whether flim-flamming his customers or outrunning the dim-witted police. 
a lovable, compassionate, bittersweet story of a man's struggle to help his ailing son. Boy, that sounds terrible. All right, uh, but <laughs> it's not. Now, the thing about uh, Cafe Express is it was released in Los Angeles in 1981. I have a newspaper review of it uh, from May 29, uh, 1981. Italian films at the art houses and the whole Lemley Theater chain were doing really, really big business at this time. Lena Wertmiller was a superstar director. Giancarlo Giannini was like a superstar, almost a lot of his movies were uh, were uh, uh, getting exported to America and playing in the art houses. And Nino Manfredi had just had one of the biggest uh, foreign film hits of the last few years with a comedy he did called Bread and Chocolate. Yeah. And that was just a sensation on the foreign film art house circuit in, yeah, it, it in kind Los of Angeles and New York. It kind of blew up the whole kind of Neapolitan tragic comedy thing. Absolutely. Like, suddenly the, those were a thing. And this was, as far as America was concerned, is kind of Nino Manfredi's follow-up. Yeah. Yeah, the movie's actually, like, was a real exciting surprise for me. It's a very charming film. I saw Bread and Chocolate, and I love Bread and Chocolate. And then I hadn't seen this, this follow-up. And then you showed me, we, we watched it together on uh, yeah. on VHS, this Paragon VHS. And I, I just loved it. Yeah, me too. I, it's a fun movie. What, what the movie is about is a uh, guy goes on the train and he sells coffee illegally. He doesn't have a license to sell coffee. So, but he goes and he sells coffee and gum and, and all that kind of junk. You know, he's got to hide from the porters and uh, uh, ticket taker, the ticker takers, and, the... and all the all, all the all the train porters. He's got to hide from yeah. them, or else he'll get uh, uh, thrown off or, or or arrested. He's been taking care of this train for a long time. Now, apparently, at the beginning of the movie, it comes down from the conductors. Okay, look, this guy has been doing this for the last five years. This is it. Tonight is the night we're getting. We're gonna. We're yeah, gonna. in Rome, they're they're they they're fed up. They've been hearing about this guy. He's like you know, he's got his own grifting business going on. We want him shut down tonight. tonight. We don't care if it's the rainiest night of the year. Yes, exactly. So all the porters are like, and the head porter is like on double. Double secret probation, trying to get, you know, trying to get, catch Nino Manfredi's character. And he keeps being sneaky and he keeps getting by. But one of the things that becomes very clear is Nino Manfredi, they, they describe him as a flim flammer. He's not really a flim flammer. I mean, the closest thing he has to flim flamming is the fact that he can never give you change. Yeah. All right. Which is actually very funny. So every time, like, uh, like well, do I have a little change? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't have any right now, but you know, I could get some change a little later if you'll still be here. Nah, don't worry about it. Okay, fine. Okay, that's what he wants. Uh, he always comes up with a long story, so he never has to give change. He's a little bit of a grifter, but he is there for everyone on the train. He's he's there. Well, to- I don't think he. I don't think he. Well, I, I'm I'm coming. I'm I'm disagreeing slightly. I don't think he is necessarily. Look, he's got his own little. Well, he's he's running an illegal operation. Let's put it that way. But 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 let's just say this is a guy with morals and a sense of duty beyond his own desperation. Well, it's one of the things that I, you mentioned is he's been doing that. He's been working this train for five years, and so. He knows the people. Yeah. We know the people know him. They want his coffee. They're, they're, and his wake up service. And they want that's really interesting. His little wake up service. He knows. He has. Oh, in in this car, in this compartment, this person is taking a nap. I'll wake him just before the thing with a cup of coffee. He's got it all down. He's got it all down. And, and the commuters th- over the last five years have gotten used to it. Yes, and they they like him, and he likes them. They are, you know, even though he doesn't officially work for the train company. 
He understands the train company. Like you said, he understands them yeah. more than the, the, the real train porters do. He yeah. understands the people more than the train porters do. He's actually He's looking, operating a valuable service. They're his people. Yeah. These customers are his customers. And he cares about He's them. He's there to take care of them. Now, along the way, there's these pickpockets who are on the train that try to get him to work with them. And, uh, and he won't do that. Because he's there to help the people. Yeah, he may be a slight shade of a grifter and he may be operating illegally, Mm -hmm. but he loves the people of this train and he loves the train itself. He's been there for five years. This is his place and he'll be damned if if he's going to let these criminals, he's not a criminal himself, though he may be, you know, operating outside of the law. He is not a criminal. He has a moral center. He seems to be doing what he should be doing. It's like it, it. It's like he might have found this as just a way to make ends meet, to take care of his ailing son, and to you know put food on the table. But he's found himself in this. He's 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 kind of special. He's found he, he's found a purpose in his life doing this. Yeah. And it's just even saying that out loud is kind of moving. <laughs> The one thing that could become saccharine and somehow doesn't because the movie is very deftly handled by Nani Loy, who directed the film, is that it's eventually revealed he has a son. Yeah. And that his son is, uh, he's got him in school. Supposedly, he's got him in school. And he's working tirelessly, his fingers to the bone, so that his son can have something he never had. Mm -hmm. Because he grew up, you know, uh, during World War II, probably. Yeah, but in particular, his son needs an operation. And then they bring up that his son needs an operation, that there's all sorts of problems, that he needs to get the medicine. Uh, In fact, the people that he's helping on the train, you know, the part of the people he services. You know, one of them happens to know know a pharmacist or something, and he's gotten him some uh, illegal uh, um, drugs that are too Mm -hmm. expensive for him to afford. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of symbiotic relationship. The people care about him. He cares about the people on the train. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yet bureaucracy is trying to shut him down. And all the criminals on the train are trying to get him to work for them. They're saying, hey, you know, everybody you everybody here loves you and you see what's in their wallets every time they, yeah, you, they pay you. You just, yeah, you just point me at the guy with the fat wallet and then we'll take care of the rest and we'll give you 30%. And he has enough of a center and enough of a sense of duty beyond his own desperation, his son's sickness even, that he jeopardizes his own success. If the train is any kind of symbol of the, the people of Italy and, you know, this yeah. kind of post-war, post-reconstruction period where some people have, you know, succeeded over the the miracle of reconstruction and most others have not. Most others are having to live on the margins of society. He's out there, you know, providing a very real service and yet, you know, being attempted to get shut down. And I just think one of the beautiful things about the movie is that it shows in the end and without giving it away that Italian bureaucracy somehow works mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> at the end of the movie. Yeah, it somehow works for the people. And it just shows that, wow, things actually can work that, you know, in the end, despite how muddled and confused and mm-hmm. broken everything is, humanity in the end somehow makes it work. There's something about the way that uh, Nanny Loy shoots it, which is actually super rough. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. you know, for a guy who was uh, no, it's all on a train. Sort of like a yeah. World War II resistance, uh, yeah, yeah. making movies about the World War II resistance. You know, this all it feels very real. In fact, when the movie begins and it's in a rainstorm, I almost thought, I thought it was going to be a horror movie mm-hmm. at the beginning. It's like suddenly it becomes this really super charming kind of warm well, comedy. What makes the whole movie work is it Nino Manfredi's performance because it's, um, he's, and I don't throw this analogy around easily. He's very much a chaplain 
kind totally. of a comedian. Which it, can go wrong in the wrong hands. Well, well, well in the it, wrong hands, that goes wrong. It well, doesn't it, with him. Well, it goes it goes wrong when they when they try to duplicate the maudlin side of Chaplin. He yeah. doesn't do that. But the quick-handed comedy bits are are hysterical because he has he does every time he does it, it's always funny. Where it's like he lays out a cup, say, uh, coffee, 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 I'll buy a coffee. So he gives somebody a cup. Pours the coffee. You want a little cream? You have to put a little of this. And then all of a sudden, he sees a conductor. And then all of a sudden, boom, he grabs the cup out of their hand and he's gone. Yeah, he's gone. <laughs> and then they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> then the conductor leaves and he comes back. Okay, here you go. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. But, uh, but he's like a phantom who just comes in and out. Like, yeah. But all that stuff is just done with just Chaplin precision of uh, uh, comic interplay. And then I've never seen uh, Bread and Chocolate, but now I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Gala, did you see it? Yeah, what did you think? I did see it, but before I give my opinion, I have a question for you guys. Mm -hmm. There's a big debate online about dubbing versus subtitles. Mm -hmm. How do you guys feel? Because I know you guys watched the dub of this. That's a a good uh, thing to bring up because we did. We watched the English dubbing of this. And I have to say, uh, usually I look for the version original. Mm -hmm. uh, But in this case... Uh, we, we the tape Quentin had uh, the the Paragon uh, yeah, yeah. TV had was dubbed, and at first I was like mm, like a, my heart sank a little bit, but then the dubbing came. And you know what? The English uh, Loop Group or whoever it was the yeah, yeah. the ADR group that did the post dubbing on this did such a good job. They they really they and I've only seen the Fantastic Planet uh, dubbing mm-hmm. English dubbing is also really good. And, and this one, I, I absolutely, I haven't seen the Italian version. Yeah, where, I, look, where I'm coming from on this, look, if I was going out to the Lemley in Santa Monica to see Cafe Express when it opened, naturally, I want to see it in Italian with subtitles. But when it comes to the movies from the 70s and the 80s, especially if they're Italian, because they're all post-synced anyway, because they yeah. never, uh, they don't shoot sync sound, it doesn't really bother me. It, does, it, 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 it doesn't matter. And, and also, at that time... Those actors doing the dubbing were so good yeah. that, you know, now look, if you're talking about a Lena Wertmiller film, I would absolutely rather see it. Uh, if I'm watching Swept Away, I want to see it in English language. But when you're talking about Cafe Express, I'm just fine with it. Being well, done. like remember when Dust Boat came out uh, and that was like a big, uh, yeah. a big mainstream breakthrough hit. Mm-hmm. And they did a dubbed version of that movie, which was so well dubbed, you couldn't tell it was dubbed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had the original actors doing Jürgen Prochnow, yeah, yeah. Uh, dubbed himself, you know, a little callback to Jürgen Prochnow. Uh-huh. And uh, it was such an amazing dubbing. It was such a good dubbing. I'm far more forgiving on especially a comedy. Yeah. I'm starting to hear in. that uh, I'm guessing that you didn't have a uh, English language. So the English language dub is oh. available free for Amazon Prime members currently and is available for rent. I was having a little bit of issue with my Amazon Prime. So I managed to find the original version on YouTube mm-hmm. and a friend of mine helped hook me up with English subtitles mm-hmm. and helped me time them to the movie. So I was able to watch. And I'm so glad. Thank you to my friend who helped me do that because this movie's awesome. Mm-hmm. I loved it. It's mm-hmm. an excellent little gem of a comedy. I wasn't, expe- I don't know what I was expecting when yeah. I watched this movie, but there is so much human kindness and compassion in this film yeah. that I wasn't expecting. I was, comedy is either hit or miss for me. And the humanity that I found within this film really hit properly. Yeah, people could really use that kind of movie right now. Yeah. The the themes of like fatherhood, giving up your son to care for him, orphans with living parents, and like transitory moments on trains, mm-hmm. they're all 
here. And the comedy is layered on top of it. But inside, there's like important messages. And mm-hmm. I love that everyone on the train is not what they seem to be. Yeah. Everyone in their own way is a con artist. Yeah. Like yeah, that's from, true. from the priest that's laying there, oh no, he just begs for money to the the people that are having an affair on the train to the cops drinking alcohol on service. Yeah. They're all just something different than what you expect them to be. And well, yet everything works. Everything's working. And everything works fine. The movie really picked up for me at the scene where he goes and picks up the medicine from his friend or the pharmacist or the yeah, doctor. Uh, yeah. And he puts his foot on the table and he starts pouring alcohol on it. It just started getting kind of wacky. And I was like, okay, I know what I'm in for now. Yeah. I'm in for this kind of humor. The scene where he goes into the bathroom, I think, and there, he, in the movie, he has a hand that people yeah, yeah. aren't sure whether or not it's a really a wooden hand or if he's faking it because yeah, yeah, they're unsure. Yeah. But he goes into the bathroom and he sees another man with a messed up hand. And they help each other wipe each other's hands off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I thought it was such they're a washing They're washing each other's hands, hands yeah, for yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah. And I thought it was such a good it's moment. A, it's a magnificent symbol of Italy at that time. Yeah, mm-hmm. when you're yeah. washing each other's hands. And the other moment that I just, I have to quote because it was so great, is the moment when he realizes that his son is on the train. Mm-hmm. And he sent his son away to boarding school to give him something he couldn't have. And his son is unhappy because he has like a, a heart issue or a lung issue that doesn't allow him to run and play with the other boys. And he says to his son, they feed you three meals a day. Isn't that enough for you? And his son says, no. And he responds, how much do you want to eat? And yeah, that's the comedy line of it. But yeah, yeah. really what's inside is that this son, he doesn't care if he gets three meals a day. He would, star- he he would just, starve he would if he could have his father. if he could be with his dad on the train. Yeah. If he could just carry yeah. the coffee cart, he would be with his dad. It's powerful. It's a powerful moment. I loved it. I think Anyone should go watch this film, whether you watch it dubbed or subbed or whatever. You should watch it. It's it's not very long. <laughs> yeah, not- <laughs> go watch it with a cup of coffee. Yeah, I uh, I did a little research, and the only thing I was able to find was that uh, in Variety, in the September 1980 issue of Variety, uh, they reviewed it and they uh, listed it at a hundred and five minutes. And now for huh. this release. It was released theatrically at 87 minutes. Paragon has got it listed at 90 minutes, but it sounds like Paragon is just, you know, <laughs> it's not like MCA where it says yeah. like uh, two hours and 37 minutes. Like, hey, yeah. Jimmy in duplication. How, how long's that film? Uh, I uh, think 90. 90. <laughs> or so. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> okay, so it's like, well, admittedly, this trifle about a legal coffee vendor avoiding the authorities is over padded, even at this length, to some degree. <laughs> but yeah. I am kind of curious to know what happened in those extra 10 minutes. Yeah, what happened? In the- <laughs> I'm sure it's just another vignette. I picked up my copy on eBay, uh, my VHS, for 20 euros or $23. And mine is from somewhere called VV Video. So I'm assuming that mine is the original Italian version. So we'll have. So to yours, see. Are, yours might actually be 105 well, minutes. When I get it in, we'll find out next month because it takes so long. We will yeah. find out. And Video Archives picked up their original tape for sixty nine dollars. And now it's award time. Let's hand some out for the three movies we're talking about: The Keep, The Relic, and Cafe Express. Roger. What was your favorite movie? Which was the best of the three? I mean, I have to just say, hands down, Cafe Express, best film. Gala. 
Although I had a blast watching The Keep, I think I also have to go with Cafe Express. It was unexpected and just a fun ride. I initially thought I would go with Cafe Express, but then I was thinking about it. And um, the truth of the matter is, I probably won't see Cafe Express again. I've seen it and I enjoyed it. And unless I get a 35 millimeter print of it and show it a, that I would watch or, uh, mm-hmm. and show it at the New Beverly with something like bread and chocolate or something, I probably won't ever see it again. The Relic, on the other hand, I've seen three times. I can see myself in six years watching this again. <laughs> so while I actually think maybe Cafe Express is the better movie, I, I'm going to give it to The Relic. Well, I'm glad that the Best Picture Award isn't always doled out by which movie you're going to see again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm going to say I love The Relic. Mm-hmm. I think The Relic is 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 great. Mm-hmm. It's just that at the end of the day, w- only one may survive the apocalypse. There, uh, 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 fiery waste is just going to blow everything to bits except for one of these movies. That's not what we said. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want case, the best one to survive. In that case, Quentin will be watching The Relic over and over and over. In that case, I would rather watch The Relic over and over again than Cafe Express. Okay, best lead actor. Okay, now that's a tough one for me. That's a tough one because I will say Tom Sizemore, I think, kicks hard, hard ass. Yeah, I do too. You know, it, um, with his reliable cop exposition delivering performance. It might be the only performance he's ever given that I'm actually 100% enthusiastic about. Well, I also really like him in Black Hawk Down. I like how he's just walking around, not paying attention to anything that's going on around him. He's just like wandering around. There's blood zinging everywhere. He's not even ducking. He's not wearing a helmet. Like, I love that about him in that movie. However, Nino Manfredi is- Yeah, yeah, Nino Manfredi. Nino Manfredi- I just think he's he's like he's funny, I, I, and I feel very very deep deep feelings when I'm watching him. And so, it's a tough one. It's a toss up between between the two for me. Yeah, look, I look, I because I gave best picture myself to mm-hmm. you know to Cafe Express. I'm going to go ahead and uh, throw it to Sizemore. Oh, good for you. I'm glad. I'm going to go with Nino Manfredi because ah. you know, at the <laughs> at the end of the day, I think I think he probably gave the better performance. You know, there's just something special to his performance. Well, this is a fantastic timing. compromise on both of our. Parts. Yes, exactly. But I'm happy you chose Tom Sires yeah, more. Yeah, I didn't want us all all three. I figured all three of us would pick Nino Manfredi, so I'm glad that you're you know. Uh, uh, yeah. You're giving Sizemore a break here. He 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 has a tough job, and he does a great job of it. Yeah, I will give it to Nina Manfredi because I cried while watching Cafe Express at the final sequence when he is being interrogated by mm-hmm. the officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a powerful moment. It's an incredibly powerful moment that I've been thinking about constantly. Yeah. Actually, okay. Now, when it comes to best lead female performance, okay, there's only one lead female, yeah. and, and that's Penelope Ann Miller. Now, I gladly give that to her. I think she deserves it. It is wonderful. And she could have beaten five people of competition. But in this instance, she really is the only lead female performance. Yeah. Okay. I'll plead the fifth. Okay. <laughs> okay. Best supporting actor. Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. The, Not mean, even a fucking question. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I was actually thinking about the um, the other guy in Cafe Express that shows up toward the end. Adolfo Chile. Yeah. yeah. But, but uh, Gabriel Byrne. But Gabriel Byrne. Although I find Gabriel Byrne very attractive in The Keep, I will have to go with Nino Manfredi's son in Cafe Express. I think they have some great moments between mm. them. And I actually... 
I really like him. I think he's a good child actor. Maybe it's because I watched it in Italian, but I don't always find child actors endearing, but I really liked his performance. Well, the truth is Gabriel Byrne doesn't need this award. He's got a, such a good career. <laughs> the kid still needs this award. How do you know? Maybe the kid's like the big star in Italy now. He That's grew up true. and you don't know. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, best Supporting Actress. Now, really, the only really one for that is uh, Alberta Watson from uh, The Keep. I mean, there's The Nun in Cafe Express, but this, it's about pretty much uh, uh, Alberta Watson, who I like a lot. I mean, part of the thing about it is, you know, one of the things about The Keep is it's so fraudulent with all of its Americans playing all these weird characters. The only two people that are legitimate, you know, uh, are... Uh, Alberta Watson's character and uh, uh, Jürgen Prochnow's character. But Jürgen Prochnow's character just kind of, you know, becomes uninteresting once he becomes a self-pitying drunk. Yeah. You know? He he plays a cartoon character more than anybody else in the movie. Yeah. And more than Gabriel Burns, like, you know, uh, Well, he starts Nazi. off great. He's terrific in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. All right. You know, but then he becomes a self-lacitating drunk and he's kind of the good German, kind of the, I'm the drunk German, you know, as <laughs> whistling while Rome burns. Um, but Alberta Watson, actually, the thing is, she's got a really strong presence. In fact- they overuse her is, is the problem because she actually has a legitimacy that these other ham bones don't have. Yeah. And Michael Mann overuses her. He overuses her legitimacy. It's a problem with the writing in that movie or perhaps a problem with the production. I think the real award uh, and, and a controversial award in, in this case would be best cinematography. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want to say Alex Thompson. Alex Thompson is my favorite cinematographer. Mm -hmm. I think he's the best. From the beginning of this movie, the keep, you know, when when the trucks are rolling in, I see the promise of it. I'm like, I'm going to see some of the best cinematography. Am I hearing a butt? Well, then the production problems happen. Alex Thompson moves on to whatever other movie he's doing. And then they continue shooting with somebody else. And you get all these crappy ass interiors mm -hmm. that look like garbage. And then I think about uh, Peter Hyams. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter Hyams is shooting yeah. the relic himself. He's shooting and directing. And just to make a note of that, about, about the relic in that regards, as far as like cinematography is concerned, and the scenes outside of the museum. Spectacular. How great is it to look at a Hollywood movie shooting at night on film yeah. that have the appropriate lights to actually light Boston? Yeah, they've got all the pesky lights up in uh, the Chicago. air. Yeah, yeah, Chicago, Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got all the pesky lights up in the air. They've got helicopters. They've got uh, a string of limos. They, they're they really like I mean, that's, rolling it out in only the way that Hollywood I mean, can in I a movie. Mean, I mean, you know, if a director insists on shooting at night on film and lighting it up, I mean, nowadays they're looked at as like, oh my God, why do we yeah, have to question? Why do we have to put up with this bullshit? Ain't nobody you know? telling that to Peter Hyams. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he, he owns it. Even Scorsese doesn't uh, 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 shoot film at night anymore. You know, he, he shoots night on digital. I will go with the relic too, as far as uh, cinematography. Yeah. I can't wait until my VHS copy comes because then I can actually see yeah. the relic. Well, you especially <laughs> didn't like the cinematography no, on whatever you saw. No, yeah. it, the digital copy was just way too dark. And the streaming the copy on... I think I have to pass on this one. I don't think I have an informed decision. But actually, I will say I have to rescind my Best Supporting Actor for I will give something to the relic. The actor that plays the Chinese doctor. No, you liked him. <laughs> I actually really liked him. I think he was comedic. I thought he was good. I liked him. So, I like that guy. So get I like it, him. So, you know Dr. What, Lee, I think, I think was his yeah. name. So yeah. I will, he was great. I'll give it to him. 
Okay, screenplay, it just seems like we're all going to say Cafe Express unless somebody surprises me. Uh, uh, um, because the screenplay for The Relic isn't very good, and no, neither and is The Keep. <laughs> and Cafe Express. If, is- if The Keep is even close to the original screenplay, I'm not even sure. Yeah. Well, I think The Keep is a fiasco. All right. Yeah. You know, the Relic. The relic is fun when you're watching it. It's when you put it under the microscope that you realize it, how bad the script disintegrates. <laughs> and yeah, the only one that even makes any sense mm-hmm. as uh, best script is. Okay, so now, best. okay, so this has all been pretty easy, but I guess here is the main question. Best director. Now we come to a question. Yes. L- listen, I love Michael Mann, just not this movie. Uh <laughs> It's going to be Peter Hyams because Peter Hyams for me too. Peter Hyams just it shows such a virility in this film. It's the reason the movie is watchable is yeah. Peter Hyams' direction. Yeah. He is just he knows what the fuck he's he doing. Knows, he knows it's, how to do this. It's a damn it. It's only me putting it under a microscope because of this show that I found the problems in it. Yeah, I wouldn't have dwelled on the problems if I had just watched it. <laughs> Unless you're Gala. Unless you're me, which I'm going to have to go with Nani Loy for okay, Cafe yeah. Express because I think not only is the movie actually funny, I don't always laugh in comedies, but mm-hmm. I found myself laughing here, which I think is partially because of the physicality of the direction, mm-hmm. but also it's shot on a train and that's, and I don't know how difficult that is to do, but I feel like it's And it looks tight, like it was really tight, shot, yeah. like on, it was a really yeah. shot it, on a train. Like they went from one place like to another. On paper, you think, oh, this is going to be a highly contained, easy to make. Uh, no, it's, shot, no, it's, no shot, it's on a moving it, train. It's shot on a train like like Henry Jaglin's tracks is shot yeah, on a train. Sure. A train that's always moving. Yeah. Too, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, there were train gags in this movie that I hadn't seen before. Like just funny things like when the train jerks and you see the one guy fall down the oh, aisle. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I really felt the momentum of that train. Uh, okay. Best scene of the three. Oh. Without giving anything away for no, the ending get, of okay. yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I can't, well, I, I can't say can, my scene because my, because my scene that I, that I love that I've been thinking about repeatedly is the end of Cafe Express. And it's kind of the uh, the display of how Italian bureaucracy works. Yeah, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And um, in the world of this movie and maybe even in the real world. Um, and mine yeah. would be when he reveals his hand mm-hmm. to the officer that's giving him all these questions because his hand is, throughout the movie they've been asking like, is your hand wood? Is it actually hurt? Are you just like faking oh, yeah. it? Mm-hmm. And he removes his glove and it starts banging it on the table because he's been in the war and he has frostbite. And it's just like this, tremendously emotional moment where you see this yeah. man who just like actually has this malady and no one has believed him and he's finally just releasing his pain from mm-hmm. being cast aside after being in the he's war. He's been holding in being called fraudulent for so long mm-hmm. and not like necessarily fighting it, mm-hmm. just making a joke out of it, that when he finally is confronted with revealing it, it is such a powerful, painful scene. However, having said that, though, I kind of wondered if he was faking it even then and just really going for it in his. <laughs> I mean, and I know I, as an actor, but, but you know he's what, doing though? it. But you know but what, though? Within I, think the movie. What, I think that's what makes a good scene is when you can watch it and think about for it and sure. debate about it. But I also love the idea that there are now connections because now there's a connection between Nino Manfredi and Tommy Sullivan. <laughs> 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 with their both a connection with a gloved hand that everyone's wondering what the fuck's up with the deal with that. It's a big reveal. It's in both movies, it's one of the best scenes in the movie when yeah. he talks about his hand. It might even be a con- connection to an upcoming episode. Yeah. <laughs> yes, knows? right on. And for you, I, Quentin? I will say the opening credits of the keep. 
If they was always, yeah. it's the reason we fucking watched the thing in the first goddamn yeah, place. I, I would say <laughs> not just the opening credits, but for me well, specifically, the, when Gabriel Byrne shows up. Well, that's different though. Yeah, okay, I know. that's different. Which is I, later. I, which is happens a little later. I after was the I was credits. back and forth between Gabriel Byrne coming into the village and doing what he does, and then the opening credits, and then the Nazis just arriving in the village, and I decide to go with the opening credits. Those in the credits night. are so good. Yeah, like yeah. that opening shot, that opening mo- sequence is just so wonderful. Well, it's the number one thing that stayed in my mind about the Keep all these years is yeah. just that open it, that Tangerine Dream music and that sorcerer truck and the it just shows it just shows how powerful nazis and mud and drizzle i mean it's that promises the movie that we don't get well it also the promise of it was still terrific it also shows the promise of michael mann like it just shows how powerful he is that even with this i mean we're calling it a fiasco Mm -hmm. even with this fiasco it has moments that are arrestingly beautiful and powerful. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Like, no, no, I was, you know, I was interested one in of, seeing his other stuff because there the was still sti- enough in it. You one know? of the greatest stylists of our age. Okay, last thing, and this can be anything. It can be a small part. It can be a, a great line. It can be a moment. We're not talking about a scene, but just what's your favorite moment of the three? Like I said, a great line, a wonderful little small performance by an actor, or just, like I said, a moment. Not a scene, but a moment. I'll start. Okay. And I didn't have an answer for it when I was saying the question, but I'll start. The comedy business of uh, Nino Manfredi laying out oh, yeah. the coffee cups and laying out the coffee, and then the conductor comes and then he snatches them all up and then and, and, and splits. <laughs> and then the customer's like, what the fuck's going on? And then the conductor lays and now he's back. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> Yeah, it would it would have to be something similar to me with Nino Manfredi, and mm-hmm. um, and I would actually probably go right back to that momentum train mo- moment where yeah, yeah, yeah. he he times like handing somebody something or or unbalancing him a little bit right as the train because he knows when the shifts in track occur because he knows the schedule by heart mm-hmm. rhythmically you know schedule wise he knows every single moment so he knows like right when the train is about to switch tracks from one track to another and that there's going to be this kind of violent jerking and he uses it to his advantage in as like a superhero would that's his superpower mm-hmm. is the train itself mm-hmm. and so i just love that that moment when, and especially how that guy goes tumbling down the hall yeah, yeah, it yeah. felt like it felt real i think i've mentioned a lot of great moments in cafe express but one that i haven't mentioned is i love the line the woman comes up to him and says i'd like a coffee or cappuccino and he starts pouring it and she's like i don't have enough money it's kind of expensive and she says do you have anything else cheaper and he says yes uh, a cappuccino without coffee and she says what's that and he says milk and she's like well okay yeah i'll take that yeah (laughs) I, i thought it was a really funny line okay quentin uh favorite demon is it the relic? Is it the keep? Or is it the inner demons of Cafe Express? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not that excited about the demons in either one of the two horror films, I, I, I will go for the inner. I will go for the the demons of Italian bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. And I think that brings us to the end of our show. Well, thank you so much. I, yeah, this was a lot of fun talking about it. You know, uh, again, not so sure about the keep, <laughs> but I had a lot more fun talking. <laughs> Relic and Cafe Express. I, you, but, you know what's funny is um, I enjoyed watching Relic. Uh, I think more than I enjoyed watching the keep, and yet my memory of the keep is actually in a weird way more positive than my memories of Relic. Mm-hmm. 
because I'm thinking about the you know the noble attempt mm-hmm. of the key. Well, it, well, it, 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 you can't talk about the relic in a serious way without saying some of the things that don't work. And then after you say that, I guess it's hard to keep up the enthusiasm that we actually felt watching the movie. Yeah, and 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 yet it it was there. It was a very real thing. I really enjoyed. We really enjoyed the, the fucking yeah. film. There's really a, yeah, had a fun we had time. a good time. It was a great monster movie. If you and I had just like back in the day yeah. wandered into the theater and, and we kept talking about like what a good job Peter, Peter Himes is yeah. doing. Shout out to Peter Himes. Yes, exactly. Wonderful photography. <laughs> Not too dark. I can't wait to see it on VHS, and I hope I'm able to actually witness the film. Okay, by the way, okay, that has got to be the final line of the I cannot wait to see it on VHS for the picture quality. <laughs> and with that, we're done. Goodbye and good night. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muallam. This episode featured additional production by Raven Goldston. We now have Video Archives merch. Go to podswag.com to see everything we have in stock. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Amazon Music. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 